you look at that? It's me, Graham Norton here. Thank you to you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. Lots coming up, including our fabulous guests. Sarah Soleimani chatted about her brand new Channel 4 comedy drama, Chivalry, as well as her own theory about the Oasis split. Stay tuned for that. Sharon Osbourne gives us an insight into the launch of Talk TV and with it her brand new show, The Talk, coming to screens near you on Monday. Crime writer Denise Mina investigates one of the real-life stories behind her novel, The Long Drop, in brand new series, Once Upon a True Crime. Actor Emily Taft tells us a twist on a modern crime tale in new Sky TV series, The Rising. Plus, show chef Martha makes a mouth-watering treat to celebrate Passover. That's all to come, but first, let's catch up with Maria and solve some more of your Graham's Guide dilemmas. Good Hello. morning, Mr. Graham, Nellie Norton. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. My favourite time of the year. Spring is here and summer is just around the corner. Hooray! Have you slipped into a caftan now that the sun has gone in momentarily? <laughs> a moo-moo, I think they're called, for the larger person. I was complaining yeah, about my bottom... I was complaining to some friends about my expanding bottom, ready for, you know, the summer. And somebody said, how do you solve the problem like my we Do you see it? Oh, oh. Do you see? Do you see? <laughs> oh, the, the fun uh, you have in Hastings. Yeah, they're dead now. They are dead now. I do not. Um, uh, no, I feel very perky today. I, I think... I had some orange juice and it said it was organic. And I feel the organic was just organic sugar. <laughs> I feel very kind of wired. Yeah. Uh, yes. And all I had was my orange juice. That's all I had, officer. Well, your body just is a temple, juice. Graham. Your body is a temple. It responds to anything you put into it. Just remember that. That's the thing. That is the thing. I, yeah. I want to talk to you this morning because a lot of people have been asking me. I put a photo up this morning about the rescue dog, Sally. Do you remember a few months ago I said about this dog had come from? Spain, rescued Sally from Spain, ay caramba, and um, she's doing very well, but she is going to see a doggy behaviourist, people are rolling their eyes now, but this little doggy's been chained up for two years and thrown the occasional bread roll, and is very frightened of people, and buses, and walking, and gets skittery, so the dog behaviourist, who's a former police dog trainer, I'm expecting him to come in full uniform, is going to come and help sort her out. <laughs> and his dog, obviously, in full uniform. Yes. I mean, some dogs are trainable, some aren't. I remember with my big Labradoodle, I got a man and he came in. He came When he came to train Bailey, he looked like he was going on safari. He was wearing like full khakis. and Oh no, that's a bit of an off-put, isn't it? And uh, and we had quite a few sessions at Bailey and then, you know, and I was paying him and still at the end of one of the sessions he turned to me and went, that's as good as that dog's going to get. Oh no! (laughs) Oh, that's not good, isn't it? Well, this man, has it many wasn't. Tes- <laughs> this man has many testimonials to his name. And I mean, I just think if you can get your dog to a position where it is the best you can be, it can be, doggy can be, um, then you've done well because you want a nice dog in your life and, and you don't want it to be irritating. I'm talking about this because we have a doggy letter coming up in the problem pages. So I'm trying to sort of link it, Graham. Do you see what I mean? Oh, Oh, self-producing. I like it. Well done, you. (sighs) I I know. um, Is it, uh, I think Julian Clary, does he say that you get the dog you need? 
or is it you get the dog you deserve? I, I can't think remember. it's really the, the the dog you deserve because you have to put the work in. It's very hard, especially when you know the history of a dog and it's been horrible, that you just want to kind of smother it in love. But, you know, there are still boundaries. It's like having a toddler. You have to have a few rules in place. And they respond better to that, if I'm honest. They just need to know what the parameters are, like a toddler. And There's you, a show in you this are movie. very There's similar, a show Graham. In I'd like to see a show where you go and train problem dogs but fail each week so the dog is just as bad at the beginning as the end. Or make it worse. That would be good if I make it worse. It wasn't biting anyone, but now it's biting everyone. It used to let us into the house. Now it lives alone. We throw food through the letterbox. Yeah, no, that that's a format I'd watch. Virgin Radio. Dear Graham and Maria, I've been married for 15 years, but to be quite honest, I'm exhausted. My partner suffers from depression and leaps from misery to elation from day to day or even from hour to hour. I was a fairly happy person, but now I feel as if my life has just slipped away as I no longer see friends or go out because it always causes jealousy and arguments. I try to do all I can to look after my partner, but I'm always to blame if they're feeling down and always criticised for everything I do or say. So I just end up doing and saying nothing and hiding away if I can. When we do have good times, they're great, but I do feel like a shadow of the confident, happy person I used to be. I'd like to walk away, but the feeling of guilt is too immense. I don't think I could live with the thought that I've made them feel even lonelier. And cut off. I know I cannot carry on much longer like this and look at the future as a curse. The burden of guilt and sadness is weighing me down. What can I do? And that is from Emma in Glasgow. Um, Emma in Glasgow, I'm so sorry that you are feeling like this, but you've done the right thing because you have reached out and that's the first step. And you have you're in the classic codependency here where you are both to blame for everything neither of you can leave neither of you are happy so I would like you to get your partner he she they to go to the doctor just because something has to break here and it could be something more serious it could be a more serious condition but it might be that the doctor is able to give your partner something to level them out and be able to get on top of this depression um because nothing is going to change otherwise and this is quite a serious situation also i'd like you to be proactive emma in glasgow there are i checked this morning there are five women's aid centers in glasgow now you know domestic abuse is not just physical as we know and you're in a situation where you need someone to talk to and that's why you can go to one of these many get in touch with them online or call them and try and change this situation you know if it means you split up you can split up together you could both go along to women's aid if you're in a same-sex partnership or get to your doctor to see your partner but you have to be proactive here someone has to 15 years is too long what do you think graham Oh, I'm so with you. I mean, 15 years. My heart breaks for you, Emma. And yet, I think we all know how this has happened, how Emma has gone for so long in this situation. Because you love someone, so you try to keep them happy, and then you suddenly notice, oh, wait a minute, my entire life is now about trying to avoid that person having outbursts or depression or sadness, and I have 
sort of edited myself down to a little husk of who I used to be. So, I mean, basically, I think Maria's right. Your partner has to accept that this isn't right, that there is a problem and your partner needs help. And it's clearly help you can't give them. You're doing your best, Emma. You think you're doing your best, but actually all you're doing is ruining your own life. And you don't seem to be helping your partner at all because they are still, you know, you say you don't want them to be more cut off and lonely. I don't think they will be. I think, you know, they'll either be the same or they'll kind of try to drag you in through kind of guilt tripping you. But this cannot continue. No, I think... I think, Graham, you know, you cannot be responsible for somebody else's happiness. And, you know, clearly your partner is not happy, Emma, and neither are you. So, you know, somebody has to take responsibility here. A, A you have to start this because you seem you've, you've started it by writing to us. But your partner has to res- take responsibility and not blame you for everything. You know, this it, it has happened over a period and it's one of those insidious things that you suddenly say, how did this happen? Where is my life? And also, I think one of the things you've got to do is when you, you know, when you say things, make sure you stick to them. You know, don't don't cave all the time. And I feel it's easy to cave because this person can manipulate you now through their moods. You know, they know Mm. that you're not going to stand up to them because you don't have the fight in you. I, I just think if you say things like, you know, if this continues, if you, unless you get help, I'm going to move out. If they don't get help, move out. Don't make idle threats. You know, make decisions for yourself, Emma. Because Maria's right. You know, you now, uh, you're, you've been for the last 15 years, you've been taking care of this partner. It's time to take care of Emma because mm. you've been lost in this. And, you know, who knows who you are anymore? I think it'll take you a while to kind of flex your muscles and and find out who you are after. Because this has been a really traumatic 15 years for you. So uh, I hope, I hope you find a way forward and really out of this because it's not helping either of you so hopefully you will get to be you know the emma you were again yeah you've done the first step you've made the first step emma now you must continue on that journey and you must be brave and strong and there will be people who can help you with that a doctor may help your partner and you can go and talk to somebody i feel you're so isolated and your letter makes me very sad and i wish you all the best but you've started so continue. Yeah, and I, I, I think there's so many people in this situation, maybe not for 15 years, but maybe for longer. But I think when you're in that situation, you feel like you can't leave because the whole relationship is about helping that other person. And suddenly, you know, the guilt it, of you, because you, Emma will think I'm being selfish. I am taking care of myself. But at some stage, that isn't being selfish. It's just self-care and Mm. and what you deserve yeah you're not helping emma because your partner is not helped your partner is getting worse sorry i interrupted you yeah no no i i I just think a lot like i say a lot of people will be in this situation or hopefully have been and can have know how to get out of it my favorite responses today will be getting a waitress and partners number one dark chocolate truffles comes in a lovely box just yeah, just gorgeous as a gift or just make yourself sick and eat them all yourself. Well done, you. Uh, Tony writes, Emma, I have lived with depression for many years. It is what I am. I am aware that I will need to take medication for all my life. 
My partner is very supportive, but I know that medication and or counselling has made her able to live with me. If your partner is not prepared to seek help, then you have to find the best future you can. Life is short. We all deserve to find happiness. Molly's in Manchester. I have been in the same situation for over 20 years. My patients ran out this year and I have left. I felt like I enabled his anxieties. We've remained friends and he has now pushed himself to get out and is living a better life. It takes a brave person to make that move, but it's your life too and you have to live it. Michael and Ryslip, I mean, he says, really, they all need to hear, please both go to see a therapist. Unless you try to change things, nothing will change. And Ben in Brighton says, in cognitive behavioural therapy, there's a saying that sometimes a solution becomes the problem. Emma, you might actually be unwittingly reinforcing your partner's sense of helplessness by always being there to take the blame. A first step might be to get some outside help in seeing where your responsibility ends and your partner's begins. Good luck. I really feel for you. And I think we all do. I mean, it's such a terrible situation to be in. Uh, I'm going to give the uh, Doc Doc Truffles to Molly in Manchester. Graham's Guide. Here she is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another letter, please. Here we go. Dear Graham and Maria, my son and his girlfriend got a dog over lockdown who is very sweet. But since lockdown has lifted, they've both gone back to working in the office. We offered to take care of the dog while they sorted out a suitable working from home or care solution. And while the dog gets on very well with our two, it now feels like we're the primary caregivers for it. They bring the dog over to us at eight o'clock every morning. So we do the first feed, morning walk and evening feed as well. This means when they pick the dog up from six o'clock, they do a short evening walk when they get home. We've told them that this arrangement needs to finish and they're insistent that they'll figure it out eventually. But this has been going on for months. We're happy to do occasional dog sitting, but this has been, uh, but sorry, but this has very much been taken advantage of. We've had a lot of conversations about it, but they've been very dismissive. I don't want the dog to suffer as a result of us refusing to take care of it. But my son and his girlfriend need to understand that a dog is a bigger commitment than just an evening pet. What should we do? And that is from Fran in Dorset. Fran in Dorset, that is a very sad problem. And I think one that a lot of people have suffered since the lockdown. And we all thought a dog was a nice idea. I mean, this is emotional blackmail because... Obviously, they know that you've got the care of the dog um, at your heart. So you're not going to put the dog in any situation where it's you know, unhappy, etc. And you're right. But it's about them taking responsibility for their actions. They decided to get a dog. They knew they would at some point go back to work. So there are endless situations they could, um, you know, light upon. They could get a dog walker to come in every day to walk the dog. I mean, it does involve the dog being on its own, and that is sad. But there are dog sitters you can get. You can um, register with Borrow My Doggy, lots of people who can't have dogs in flats, etc., but will happily walk another person's dog. I mean... They must commit to this. It strikes me that, frankly, Fran endorse it a bit like people who look after the children. You are an unpaid dog sitter and they are resistant, clearly, to having to shell out some money to deal with. You know, they they love their dog, clearly, but it's not their dog isn't a part time commitment. So 
you have to, again, but like the first letter for Annie Dorset, you have to be tough on this and say, we've done this for a long time. We love your dog, but it's not fair on us or the dog. And now is the time for you to take responsibility. Parents are always don't want to upset the children, but this time you have to stand firm. Graham? Well, I'm furious at everyone in this letter because I think <laughs> Fran... Uh, Fran says, what should we do? What you should do is get back in a time machine and point out to these stupid people that they shouldn't have got a dog. You knew this they were going to back to the office. They knew they were going back to the office. This situation was always going to happen. You know, this it was you could see this coming a mile off. So mm-hmm. you that's when you should have been tough mom. That's when you should have been really, you know, severe with them and say, But Fran no. offered. Fran did offer when they went back to work. She made that offer. And now that's no. being taken advantage of. And here's the thing, though. Fran has two dogs anyway. So you're you're stuck with your dogs. Da, da, da. I think there need to be consequences here. Um, and I would just take the dog off them. I would just say, right, you can't have a dog because you aren't capable of looking after a dog. So it's ours now. And, uh, you know, sling your hooks. Sling your dog hooks. Yeah, but maybe Fran get... doesn't want another dog. And also that is going to sever relationships with her son and girlfriend. That's quite harsh, Graham. There must be another way. They're morons. They're morons. They should... <laughs> I mean, what? I'm inclined to agree with you, but that, you know, that doesn't solve the problem, does it? I felt it did. It got rid of the kids and you got a nice new dog. I I see win win. your son for a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Because the dog's sweet, whereas the. And also, you know, you don't expect a dog to be too clever, but uh, but your son. I just, I just, I'm so cross with all these people that this was such an obvious thing that was going to happen. And now look, it has happened. And and a lot of people are suffering from that. But do you think, Graham, this is a financial situation? Because they've discussed it, they've had conversations, they've been dismissive about it. She doesn't want the dog to suffer. But. They need to understand, don't they, that they've got to, if they're not going to look after the dog, they now have to start paying somebody to dog sit. It's yes, not like there's a, a lack of people to do these things, dog sitting, dog walking, uh, you know, borrow my doggy. There are lots of options, but they're not doing any of them. The problem is, Fran is sat in a house with two dogs. So you can see why the kids are thinking, mm, there's another one. Um, so, we, you know, stop stop moaning about looking after our dog. But equally, I think there have to be consequences to them making a really stupid decision. So I think, I, I, I'm sticking with my guns. I think you take the dog. You just go, right, you don't have a dog anymore. We do. And boom, done. Because they, they need to, you know, they need to smarten up and figure out that it's choices and consequences. They made choices. Now there have to be consequences. Because right now there are none. They're having a lovely yeah. time. They yeah. get to come home and meet their lovely dog, have a short little walk and then snooze on a sofa. Um, You know, ha-ha, great. Aren't we clever? No, what about not. if Fran started charging them at the same rate that a dog sitter would? I mean, that's a consequence. Tr- that's a consequence. They it, still have a it dog. It is a consequence, but my worry is they'll just put that dog in a shelter or something. If you know, they, because then they'll punish Fran for trying to do something. You know, I, it's a mess. Who'd have known this would be a, such a thorny problem? But I really, I think it is a terrible thorny problem. And I'm furious with you all. Uh, get in a time machine. Go back to the beginning <laughs> of the pandemic and don't get this puppy. It was an ac- it, such a bad idea. But the trouble, you're right though. So many people have done this. So many people have dogs that they're now really struggling to take care of. Because obviously, when you work from home, how nice to have a little dog snoozing yeah. around. The, and the and feet. during lockdown, when we couldn't really, you know, do anything. So a little puppy was great to play with. But, you know, 
a bit like having children. They grow up. They then demand a little bit more of your time. I mean, I'm just glad you're not my dad, frankly, Graham, because you you oh, made me. my dog <laughs> go into a shelter. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've taken my dog no. away from me. Yes, I would. I would now be talking to Dolly, and you. Well, I don't know where you'd be, but Dolly'd be on the radio to Graham's guide. Uh, Sarah from Starbridge. Start charging them. Charge local dogminder rates, or just don't answer the door when they come round. Well, that that would work certainly if you did that. And um, Hillary, this is genius. My very sensible eighty-three-year-old mom has just suggested that they do a quid pro quo thing: start booking weekends away and days out, and tell the son that he is covering their dogs at weekends whenever they need, in exchange for them covering in the week. Wise woman, my mom Mary. Well done, Mary and Hillary. Thank you for being in touch. That is a good idea because yeah, they'll get a taste of their own medicine. Uh, Lynn. Fran, if your son and his girlfriend are like this with a dog, what are they going to be like when they have children? Maybe you should emigrate now, I'm telling you. And Angela says, my advice for Fran in Dorset would be to listen to Graham. Oh, Uh, I absolutely agree that there are choices and consequences. Take the dog permanently or start charging them. If they resist, then you have to be firm and reiterate a dog is for life and say, sorry, you cannot have the dog anymore. So all good advice, but I'm going to give the uh, dark chocolate truffles to Hillary. But Hillary, you now need to give them to your mother, Mary. Okay? The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to be my first guest of the day. Channel 4 have a new uh, comedy drama called Chivalry. It's available to stream or download for free on all four now. Uh, the person who uh, co-wrote it and co-stars in it is Sarah Salamani, and she joins us now. Hello. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, so happy to have you. I love sh- films and television shows <laughs> that are about films and television shows I, I even even when I was a little kid I just loved kind of industry industry things so tell us about Chivalry how do you describe it to people so Chivalry is a comedy drama and I play a sort of feminist filmmaker who's been drafted in to make a film less sexist that's being produced by Steve Coogan's character Cameron and along the way they sort of have a will they won't they um, connection which is problematic because on paper neither of us remote like each other uh, but yeah we're sort of exploring a kind of post me to new gender political landscape with a lot of laughs and rude words along the way there are a lot of laughs and rude words um, in terms of co-writing what was that experience in, in like did you actually sit in a room together or were you kind of passing drafts back and forwards how did it work well uh, we did yeah we, we were in a room for a bit and then sort of Covid happened and there's a lot of zooming and we would just throw ideas back and forth and then I would I would do the writing and as I, as I said to Coogan you know you bring a lot to the table sadly not a pen or a laptop uh, <laughs> so he just sort of paces around and says very funny things and I write them down and, and then we kind of uh, yeah we have a little back and forth I feel like is there a lot of Steve in this, if you know what I mean, in his character? I feel like it. It, it is it quite close to him. Well, I think we're exaggerated versions of ourselves. <laughs> let's put it like that. But interestingly, <laughs> both of us can pitch and sort of write each other's characters w- w- really well. So a lot of like the the lines that um, 
that my character says, you know, she says, I've been, we have a big argument at one point about hobbies and why women never have hobbies. And she's like, I don't have time for hobbies because I've been hacking through this jungle that most average men just stroll into. And that was from Steve. So he can, he can kind of tap into to a sort of feminist's psyche quote suspiciously easily. And th- this idea of what's happened to uh, TV and film in a kind of post-Me Too world, w- were you then, were you kind of deconstructing it but also dealing with it while filming this show? Absolutely. It was, you know, the first thing of Me Too was just a, a shock and horror at the extent of abuses that had happened. And then it was like, oh, hang on, what what happened to me? You know, I was an actress since the age of 16 and loads of shady things happened and, and, and me and my actress friends, we just sort of assumed that that's what happened and, and we trivialised and we, we anecdotalised what happened and we, we almost normalised it. And so there was this reckoning and writing the show has really helped. It's been very cathartic in unpacking what power dynamics and abuses of power mean. Um, and trying to make sense of of where we are, but also be able to laugh because without laughing we can't heal. Um, and so that was a big challenge for us in in not undermining what the movement was, which was a, this confession of pain and abuse, but also trying to make light of how men and women now interact. I also love that your character, you know, she goes into it full of good intentions, but then just the practicalities of trying to film something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> kind of, her tolerance is kind of whittled away. Right, exactly. And I think that's what the show is exploring. It's like you can have all your ideologies and your values and your theories, but then in practice, do you live your values? And all of us, to some extent, are challenged on that. Um, and... Hollywood and the entertainment industry it's it's really good for kind of capturing the, the carrot that's dangled between most before most artists which is you do this one thing and then you can do whatever you want you can do this big superhero movie and it's a franchise and it's totally against who you are as an artist and a filmmaker but once you do that you can do whatever you want and so some some people just keep doing that in the hope that they can and and then never do what they want so I think it's a it's a good it, it captures that that compromise of integrity and am I right in thinking this whole show began talking on set about the fallout of Me Too? Yeah, we were filming Greed, this film with Michael Winterbottom, and Me Too had just happened and we were talking about it and kind of processing it and arguing about it and making each other laugh. And um, I think it was Michael who said, God, can you just like go and write a show and stop distracting each other while we're trying to make this film? <laughs> so that's what we did. Wow, and in terms of cast, it's an incredible cast. Did anyone tell us about some of the people in it, and did anyone turn you down? Because it looks like this is your absolute kind of A game. It was the dream. It was the dream team, and for example, Wanda Sykes, I absolutely worship. She's my favorite, um, one of my favorite stand-ups, and. and I saw her at a party and I said to her, oh, you know, I really would love you to be in a show. And I, and we exchanged numbers. And then I wrote it and sent it to her and she was like, oh, it's really funny. I'd love to be in it. And then Sienna Miller and Paul Rudd and John C. Riley, just lots of little cameos. We just sent to people we knew and just said, do you want to come and have fun with us for a few days? And um, we were really thrilled and, and kind of shocked when they all said yes. I, mean, I smell you. I mean, really, it's incredible. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and uh, let's take a break for some music. Uh, one of you chosen, and I believe there's a particular reason why you want to play this track. I have chosen Live Forever by Oasis. 
um, for several reasons. The first is because I was and am the biggest Oasis fan that ever lived. And me and my friend Kylie Lempert-Franks, shout out to Kylie if you're listening, uh, we took ourselves to Nebworth at the age of 13 on our own on the train and rocked wow. out. Uh, I mean, we really were super fans. We stayed outside their house. We, we, were, we were kind of that sort of stalky level. Um, but, but, but more seriously than that, I feel that these brothers contain, when they make music together, the healing bonds that can unite our country once more. I don't think it was a coincidence that when they were making music together, the country was united and bra brave and bold and proud of itself and it was cool Britannia and we liked our government and everything was working well and when they stopped making music, look, look where we are now. And if they can overcome their wounds... And I'm sure they said things and they've done things that they regret. But if Noel and Liam, and if you're listening, if you can recover and forgive yourselves and make music once more, this country can evolve past its divisions and be a beautiful, brave rock and roll country once again. Sarah, I just want to go back and ask about <laughs> you being 13 and going to Nebworth with your friend. What lies did you tell to do that? <laughs> Well, you know what? I don't. I just don't think we gave our parents the full information. We just said, "Oh, we're going. We're going out. We're going to go out to to a gig," and then we just went. And um, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was also the Prodigy and Manic Street Preachers. It was just the best lineup. It was the best vibe. Honestly, I do think these brothers have a sort of sh sh have shamanic powers that can take you to some sort of weird cosmic psychic supersonic dare I say it level and that's kind of what I felt then and and honestly I do think them coming together would, would reverberate around the country and and the rest and, of the world and did you and your friend did it all go swimmingly or were there moments when you kind of went uh oh we're a bit scared now <laughs> that well we were in a mosh pit of like you know 20 30 year old Manchester men who were doing naughty things which we'd never seen before and I think uh, uh, they just said look what they're doing and I looked and we were horrified but then we just carried on rock and rolling and did you ever tell your parents Do, are they finding out now yeah oh but yeah well they're, well, they're very you know they're very um, liberal and uh, and let me kind of do what I want and every time my parents said oh, I don't think you should do that that it would just I would call such a stink uh, that uh, that it wasn't worth their while and I, and I tried to get good grades so they could just like, leave me alone and that's kind of how I ran around London and England when I was a kid and look at you now Hollywood baby because you <laughs> you you got to film in the actual Hollywood yes Yes, we did. And not just Hollywood. We were filming in, uh, we filmed in, in really interesting locations like Boyle Heights is this Mexican community in, in LA with um, a mariachi band um, stand. So all the mariachi band players would go and try and get a gig for the day. And we shot one episode there. We shot in Ron Finley's um, garden, who's this, um, he's, he, he's a community leader who takes ex-gang members and gives them spades and encourages them to garden and we shot in his garden so trying to, to take the show away from that all the traditional glitzy hollywood stuff and show like the real pulse of the city which is electric oh i haven't seen those yet because i've only i've only seen the first two episodes because uh, they were available before but now i think it's all available now right it is yes you can binge away 
How many apps? Apps. Listen to me. Six apps. Someone's in the industry. Oh yeah, apps. Oh yeah, Uh, lots of apps. Um, And and I because I don't know. Have you written things before, or is this now ignited a fire onto you, and you think I can do this? I can write. I can I can write and make my own work from now on. Yeah, I've written. I've been writing for a while. I've I I wrote a few things on British TV, and then I wrote shows in America. Wrote Barry on HBO, and then I wrote. I love Barry. Oh. Thank you. Yes. And of course, you're in it, aren't you? I'm not in Barry. No, I was just no. I was just a writer for hire, no. um, and I wrote Ridley Road, which is a drama on BBC One that came out last year. Uh, it was a, a period piece set in 1962, looking at a revival of a fascist movement and a Jewish resistance group. Um, so yeah, I've been writing for a while. I love it, and 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 writing and being in it, it, it it's it's. You know, it's a lot. They say uh, making your own show is like being beaten to death by your own dream, which is pretty accurate. But it's it's it, I'm so proud of it, and and it it's exactly what me and Coogan wanted to create. So yeah, we're very pleased. And in terms of you know, you're playing a director and you've co-written it. Presumably, you were quite in charge, or did you kind of were you good at sitting back and going, no, other people can direct this. It's a it's an interesting one because you have to have a very clear, precise vision, and because this is dealing with pain, essentially, it's dealing with um, agony, uh, and but you're trying to make people laugh. It's a really delicate tightrope to walk, so you have to have a very clear vision, but you also have to be so sensitive to how people are responding to the scripts and to the scenes, and and I always view anyone who's reading my scripts. Uh, whether they're in the production or they're or, or they're for the channel, they're my first audience. So their response matters, and so it's a, it's a matter of, of being really collaborative, but always sticking to to your vision so that it's delivered. And did you actually hear the phrase "I find this triggering" at any stage while you were making it? <laughs> um, did I hear the triggering? Um, no, but. <laughs> we were. Aw- are you saying that? Are you saying that as a sort of joke on on people? Who no, not no, not a joke. Because it's just because I'm look. I'm old as time. So you know, I don't. I, 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 you know, maybe my whole life has been triggering. I don't know. But I know that it's it is a thing now. People are triggered by stuff, and I just wondered because of the things you're dealing with while you're actually making it, were people being triggered in real time? If you know what I mean. Uh. No, but we were always mindful, even the conversation that you and I just had about that word is kind of what we're trying to capture because there's two schools of thought, which is, you know, we're in a place where, you know, you can't say much, people are so sensitive, people are snowflakes, they're triggered all the time. And there's another way of looking at it, which is younger generations are just looking at older generations, we don't accept the pain that you thought was normal. And we and the way you shift that culture is through language and through imagery. So calling people up on moments that might cause pain isn't in itself wrong. So it's 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 the cultural shift that we were trying to figure out and you have to put in pain to to deal with that um but we would some episodes you know we would say to people like this might be triggering if you watch it because that's what we're dealing with so you do have to be you have to be extremely sensitive but for for us it was like if it felt uncomfortable and if it felt dangerous we would kind of head towards the fire um and because for us that's just where the good work lies well you did a great job it it kind of it 
it is funny, but it's also really kind of thought provoking. And there are moments when you do go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chivalry is the name of the show. It's available to stream or download free on all four, four now. Uh, Sarah Salamani, thank you so much for coming in to talk to us. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, Graham. Take thank care. you so much. All Bye. right. Bye, 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 bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Sharon Osborne, I haven't spoken to you for a thousand years. How are you, Sharon? Oh, my Lord, I am so good, especially because <laughs> I'm talking to you. Aw. And now, what are, are you back in Britain now? I am. I'm back here for uh, three weeks right now. And then I go home again for three and then come back here for a couple. So I'm going back and forth until Christmas till we move here permanently. You're bringing everyone back. I'm bringing my hubby back. Um, The kids um, are so American. They don't want to come back here. So it's just Ozzy and I. And how is Ozzy? He's good, thank you, Graham. He's he's really, really good. He's finished another album, which is coming out in September. And there we are. He's busy in the studio. He still, you know, does all his writing and singing and it keeps him really happy. Oh, that's great that he's still working. That's fantastic. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. He'll he'll never stop singing and, and writing. And we've built him a big studio here at the studio so he can he can do it all at home and and he's you know he can't wait to come back to be honest with you because when did you leave i mean you you haven't lived in this country for decades oh i i first left here in um the 70s and then came back for a few years with the kids and Aussie and then went back again. So um, I've spent more of my life in America than I have here. Well, what's it going to be like? It's going to be kind of a culture shock coming back here, isn't it? Um, no, because we've always kept a home here. We always did. And the kids have homes here. But um, not really. It's actually right now at this time of my life, it's... Um, I'm just so at home. I I missed it for the last few years. I've definitely missed it. But I just feel very much at home. Well, listen, welcome home. It's great to have you back. The Talk is your new show on Talk TV. And this starts, is it Monday night it starts at nine o'clock? It does, Monday night, yeah. I'm excited. And it's five nights a week. It is, but um, I'm going to be doing some weeks five nights and some weeks four and some weeks three depending on what's going on in my life and there's you know a, a there's actually nine people that will be on a rotor that go you know around and a, you know if somebody can't make it that day then there's somebody to stand in you know because it's, it's like a sort of panel discussion show am i right yes that's right yeah and it's, i should tell people what Go on. Sorry, Graham. No, no. I was just going to do uh, boring business stuff and tell people that it's on Sky Channel 526, Virgin Media Channel 627, Freeview Channel 237 and Freesat Channel 217, as well as via connected TV series and smart devices. There you go. That's the that's the that's the uh, the business end. But no, t- tell us tell us more about the panel and how you've put those people together. Are you have you been involved in that side of things? No, I haven't, Graham. No. Um I, you know, it's a, it's a great, 
group of people, very, very different um, people. We all have our own opinions, which makes it, you know, much more fun than everybody agreeing and going, oh, yes, I agree with you, because then it's kind of boring TV. So we've all got our own opinions. But the most important thing is we've got a lot of respect for each other. So it's a very non-combative we don't want it combative but yet at the same time it's not oh i love you i love you more sort of thing everybody says what they feel and you can have a laugh saying it and be respectful at the same time and is it live it is yeah (laughs) all right so will viewers be able to kind of send in messages and things and get involved in the discussion um We haven't done that yet, but we're hoping to very much, yes. It's great to have you back on TV. I didn't realise, it's 20 years, almost to the day, since uh, the Osbournes started on MTV. Can you believe it, Graham? It's it's, (laughs) it's another lifetime ago. And what was your life like before that? Because I can't remember. Were you a public figure, Sharon? Obviously, in the industry, everyone knew who you were, your manager and everything. But but did the were you sort of well known generally? No, no. I was behind the scenes. You know, I was just an, another face that worked in the music industry, but never in front of the camera ever. Do you looking back now? Because you know you did it, and no one knew what that was going to be like. Because you were kind of there; you were one of the first to do that idea of having a reality show, and it was such a huge success. Do you have any regrets, or if what I would say is, if the if the family next door said, "Oh, we're going to do a reality show," would you advise them for or against? Oh, I would advise for. I mean, I have no regrets at all. It was three years of an amazing time in our lives. And, you know, we look back on it very fondly. But it was just the time to stop. It was an amazing experience, but it was also time to stop after three years. It was enough for us. Because did it change your family? Did it change the dynamics in your family? Um. Listen, it was very hard for my kids at that age, at, you know, uh, 14, 15, to suddenly, you know, everybody knew who they were and being watched all the time. It was, it was, um, it was definitely time to stop all that for the kids. Yeah. And, and you- the fact that, you know, Ozzy touring around the world and, you know, making albums, he didn't need it. He was just like, oh, can we stop now? And, you know, he wants to get back to music. But um, it was still a great experience. It was fantastic. And, um, you know, we've got three years of, a, of a, a video diary on our family, which is incredible to pass on to, like, Jackie's kids and things. It's amazing. Actually, that's a lovely way to think about it. Yes, of course. That that is that would be incredible to be show to show them kind of granny and granddad and the the life that that mad life you lived. That is extraordinary. Yeah. That you'll be able to do that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and and their dad behaving badly. You know, it's perfect. <laughs> um, and. 
and tell me this, Sharon, because, you know, one of the things that we love about you is, you know, you like to push boundaries. You like to break rules. That's 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 kind of what makes you such great TV. What's it going to be like on talk TV where you feel like actually that, you know, their thing is you, you can't push boundaries. Like you can say anything, you can do anything. Is it going to be weird not kind of fighting a producer where actually they're just going, yeah, say that if you want? um no it'll be it'll be a relief you know it'll um it's a place where you can have an opinion and not be afraid to share it and and nobody's gonna you know um put you on warning or suspension or fire you and and it's not and we're not looking we're not looking for a place to be abusive, hurtful, disrespectful. It's not that way. It's just that we all think differently, don't we? Yeah, I I'm, I like the way you kind of you won't be fired for it. I feel like you're setting down a challenge. <laughs> Like, <laughs> oh, I'll throw down the gauntlet, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You won't fire me. Uh, they won't. It'll be so lovely to see you back on television. Uh, Sharon Osborne, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, the talk kicks off on Talk TV Monday night at 9 o'clock and then streams uh, weeknights after that. Uh, so nice to talk to you, Sharon. Take care of yourself. Oh, Graham, bless you. Love you. And love to the rest of the family too. Take care now. Thank Bye. you, darling. Thank you. Bye. 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 Still to come, Denise Miner and Emily Taff are bringing us some criminal tales. But first, let's head to the kitchen and see what show chef Martha Collison is beginning up to. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Do you know what? I can't complain. Hey, what have you made for us today? Oh, today is a, is a beast of a cake, this one. It's absolutely huge. It's a, um, a flourless chocolate and hazelnut cake today. Wow. And this is to celebrate the end of Passover? It is indeed, yeah. So it's flowerless, so it fits the criteria, um, but it also will be brilliant for celebrations. It's one of those cakes where, well, Jane will hopefully tell you soon, but you wouldn't necessarily (laughs) know that it was (laughs) gluten-free. Sometimes you immediately know when something's gluten-free because it just doesn't taste very nice. But this cake... Your heart sinks. (laughs) (laughs) It does a little bit. (laughs) This one, you would know. Let's go to Chief Taster, Jane Middlemas. Uh, how are you? Good morning, Greg. I'm very well today. I'm very well because I've already had a huge slice of this cake, <laughs> to be honest. Mm. I, mm. Do you want me to just go straight into oh. it? Because I just can't go, go straight lyrical into it. enough about this. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm literally, I'm not a sweet person, as I told you last week. But mm. if I was going to eat something, this would be it. The texture of this cake is like a cross between butter and velvet, if you can imagine that, but chocolate flavoured. And it mm. just, it's like got the consistency of like the outside slightly like a meringue, but the inside like a mousse. So it's really like this sort of like, it's not heavy, it's light. So it's like a chocolate moussey type, you know, those mud pie cakes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a little bit like that. So it's just got this beautiful texture. The taste is, it's not too sweet. So it's just on the cusp of that real dark chocolatey beautifulness. And then the top, icing is this gorgeous coffee it, but you, it's not really strong coffee because I don't like that but it it's really <laughs> nice it's just like it's sort of like comes through with another texture and another sort of like flavor in there and sprinkled with hazelnuts chopped hazelnuts that are roasted and do you know what I I thought it really felt like it was really reminiscent of a cake 
like a cornetto, the top. It was like <laughs> yes. the cake version of a cornetto. And it was, it's just, it's, I swear it is out of this world. And I have already eaten a lot and I'm going to have to go for a run now. <laughs> I can't wait till we serve you something you don't like, Jane. <laughs> I'm not sure that's going to happen. <laughs> I can wait. <laughs> You're going, eh, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> it's really bad, Graham. I'm going to be the size of the house by the end of this. <laughs> all right, thank you very much, Jane. Let's go back to Martha and find out how to make it. It's interesting because it sounds like it's going to be really dense like a really thick thing but from what Jane says it's actually quite kind of uh, it's quite light yeah it's got loads of eggs in it like a lot a whole box six eggs <laughs> go into this oh. cake and you're <laughs> okay. whipping a lot of air into those so it does have a really lovely light texture so it's not as heavy as you might imagine which means you can just go back for more and more <laughs> okay so how do we how do we start how, how do you do it so we're going to start by melting together butter and chocolate in a large bowl either in the microwave or over a pan of boiling water and whilst that is melting you're going to blitz some roasted hazelnuts so you can buy these in waitress in a packet already roasted so you haven't got to kind of faff about with toasting your own hazelnuts if you don't want to be doing that so you're going to put your hazelnuts into a blender and process them until they're really finely ground like ground almonds um, and hazelnuts have got a really nice um, kind of they work so well with chocolate that Nutella kind of vibe so you're having hazelnuts and then you've got some ground almonds as well so that's going to get mixed into your chocolate and butter then we're going to take our eggs our six eggs our whole box of eggs and we're going to separate them the whites are going into an electric whisk you do i would say you need an electric whisk for this recipe or you have or you would need very strong arms <laughs> to make that meringue okay. but the whites are going on into one bowl you're going to whisk them to soft peaks and then add your sugar to make a little meringue and then your yolks are going into the chocolate then we're going to fold through that meringue through the chocolatey nutty mixture pour it into a large tin and then that bakes for about 35 to 40 minutes and the most important thing with this cake is that it when it's ready it's not like a regular cake where if you open the oven and there's a wobble you have a nightmare <laughs> this cake you want a wobble you want to open the oven and have a little wobble in the middle because that's what leaves that lovely moussey texture once it's cooled down so out the oven, leave it to cool, and then we're topping it with a little bit of cream. It can be amaretto cream if you're into that, or I've done it with a little bit of coffee today because, you know, it's only 10.45. <laughs> yeah, pace yourselves, pace yourselves. Um, well, it, honestly, it sounds extraordinary. It sounds, yes, I think a lot of people who uh, who bake will be really interested to try this, You just as an experiment, just see what this is like. Uh, very good. So that is the uh, flourless chocolate and hazelnut cake. The recipe is on our Instagram at Virgin Radio UK. Stab away there and you'll be led to the receipt. Uh, I'll see you tomorrow morning, Martha. Is it sweet or savoury tomorrow? Something savoury and a little bit, little bit lighter tomorrow than this kind of chocoholic dream. <laughs> oh, Jane will be, dispo Jane will be disappointed. <laughs> Jane's not going to come tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, salad? No, thank you. Uh, I'll talk to you tomorrow. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Look who's here. It's Martha Collison, show chef. Hello, Martha. Hello. Uh, how are you? Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Been cooking away this morning, as usual. <laughs> well, that's your job. That is, so, uh, that is what I do. But... <laughs> yeah, that's all you do. Uh, what, what have you made for us today, Martha? <laughs> uh, so today is a nice, a quick throw-together Sunday lunch for you if you're listening and you're thinking it's a lovely sunny day, you don't want to do a full roast. So this is a balsamic chicken and sweet potato tray bake. 
Oh, lovely. Very good for washing up. All of the above. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, chief tester. J- not bottle washer, just tester. Taster. Uh, Jane, Jane Middlemas, uh, you've been uh, shoveling it down, you. I uh, have. What, <laughs> what, what do you think of it? Do you know what, Graham? I was a little bit concerned when I fo- first saw this because the chicken has got no skin on it. And I was like... You know, oh, oh, that's so weird. Mm-hmm. That is so weird. I looked at the picture and I mm-hmm. thought, surely this is just a bad picture. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually... When I first saw it, I was like, oh, what am I going to say if this is really bad? And actually, then I tasted it and it's 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 really odd because because it has no it doesn't have any of that. And it's boneless. It just it is so soft and it's really delicious and it makes it more healthy but the really nice thing about this dish firstly it's like one pot so you just stick it in the oven it's really really easy which is right up my street but it's got the balsamic onions running through it which gives it this like hit of heat going into it and also then then that sort of marries up against the sweet potatoes and the sweet peppers so you've got those two sort of like clashing tastes in that and then you've got the chicken which just sits there well you know you know what chicken tastes like tastes like chicken but very delicious but um also the thing that i really liked which i was like in weird is um, it has tarragon on top. And tarragon is a herb that I would say people quite often associate with fish. But this tarragon just sort of like gives it this... Do you know what? It's like a party dress on top of the chicken. So the chicken is like this really nice tray bake with then you get to that and it's like the party dress. And it's really nice. I would say it's a really easy sticking in the oven. It's going to please everybody. It's good. Oh, okay. Thumbs up from Jane. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back to Martha. Thank you very much. And uh, let's go back to Martha and find out how to make it. So, what are these? Are they they're boneless? Yes, the chicken got, thigh. Yeah, boneless chicken thighs. So you could definitely do this with skin on boned chicken thighs if you want to but it is quite nice when you're not having to faff about with getting the bone out on your plate it's nice easy just give everyone a big a big serving and it does as jane said make it slightly healthier which is good and you can get the essential waitrose boneless chicken thighs already done for you in massive one kilogram packs so quite affordable and good value if you want to do something for a crowd um, so we've got our chicken and then we've got just a few lovely summery vegetables. So we've got sweet peppers in there, some um, sweet potatoes as well. And then I think what makes this recipe really cool, actually, is what Jane was saying, is this balsamic onions are, um, they come in a jar like a pickled onion. So I was a bit, I wasn't quite sure what they were going to taste like when I put them in. But actually, because they've got this, they've soaked up all that balsamic flavour over the time they've been in the jar... And then they're roasted for 50 minutes in the oven with all of these other things. They are really mellowed and not as pickled oniony as you might expect and just make a really lovely sauce for your chicken. Um, how, how, at my age, have I wandered up and down the aisles of Waitrose for this many years and not come across the balsamic onion? Um, do, do, do they look like a pickled onion? Yeah, they look like they look kind of like brown pickled onions. I would say they're not the most attractive onions I've ever seen. They're called bor- boratan, I think is how you pronounce it. Boratan onions. And <laughs> um, you find them in the jar section. And yeah, the recipe's got two tablespoons of the balsamic juice in there as well. But if you can't find the onions, you can do it with just regular shallots and make sure you give it a good slosh of balsamic vinegar before you put it into the oven. And then you can just go and have a cup of tea whilst that roasts away for 45 minutes and then serve it up. I'd probably do some couscous or something really easy kind of summery lunch yeah and what do you need to cover it in foil or anything or just shove it in 
No, it literally gets shoved in. There's enough moisture and liquid in this uh, kind of bottom bit to steam those vegetables really gently. Um, but the top of the chicken will get slightly crispy um, and just nicely browned. Oh, come on. There is not a person in the land that couldn't make this. I mean, <laughs> you know, sometimes you tell me something's easy and then you start describing it. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> this, any, any moron could make this. This is uh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. uh, is that a bad thing to say? No, it's good. You know, I'm not disparaging our listeners, but there must be a few thickos out there. So even, <laughs> finally... Finally, something for them to make. That's great. <laughs> we got there <laughs> they in the end. <laughs> yeah, they too shall eat. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, and just 45 minutes and then out it comes. The balsamic chicken and sweet potato tray bake. If you go to our Instagram account at Virgin Radio UK, you can stab away there and you will find the recipe. But really, you've, kind of, you've got the recipe right now. You just get those things, shove them in a tray and shove them in the oven for 45 minutes. Uh, thank you so much, Martha. Have a great week and I'll talk to you next weekend. Yes, looking forward to it. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Once Upon a True Crime is a really clever new show where um, real-life murders are investigated, uh, real-life murders that were in, that inspired some of the acclaimed author's most famous novels. And one of the acclaimed authors joins us now, Denise Miner. Good morning to you. And good morning to you. Uh, this is a clever idea for a show. So describe it to people. So it's it. There's four episodes, right? There's four episodes, and we're all writers who have written about the particular cases we're talking about. So it's it's quite difficult for us because we know so much about them. I think most writers really love doing research. So Peter James is doing the Babes in the Woods murders. But Mark Billingham is covering the Moors murders. I'm doing the Peter Manuel murders. And Douglas Skelton is doing the ice cream murders. It's four episodes um, each Monday at nine o'clock on Crime and Investigation Channel. And um, when I started it, I thought this is, oh, this is a mistake. This is a lot of peering and looking suspicious in alleys and things like that. I don't know if this is for me to be honest with you. <laughs> but actually, when we went to do the voiceover, it's actually brilliant. And the graphics on it really make it, because if you watch the Crime and Investigation channel like me, you probably watch a lot of true crime stuff. And we're very discerning. I mean, I know most people think we're just idiot ghouls who'll watch anything, but we're very, very opinionated. And these are actually really good. They're good quality. They've, they've got tremendous tension in them and they tell you stuff that you don't know. There is a lot of peering in alleys and looking suspicious and tutting at the camera. There is a bit of that, but that's just my is own it, Is it your opinion. eye? Is it your eye that keeps shutting or is that someone else's eye? No, it is my eye. You can tell because um, I've got a bit of a sty. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's, there's, a, there's a sort of graphic convention in it where an eye keeps blinking and it's the shutter of your eye. So it's a bit Brunel. And uh, and I've got a, I've got a nascent sty in my eye and I've tried to cover it over with eyeliner um, it's quite disturbing. <laughs> it's more well, disturbing than know, the murders. I, did, I didn't. I didn't notice the sty. So what? So we should say that the 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 Peter Manuel murders are featured in your book, The Long Drop. If people haven't read The Long Drop, they should run, not walk, to their nearest bookshop and get it. It is such a brilliant, brilliant book. Um, so were there things like I noticed things like you you seemed in the show to find out. Uh, what height Peter Manuel was is that was that real yes it was and I actually got to do things that I didn't get to do when I was doing my own research he was tiny he was one of those wee um, barrel men that you used to get after the war when nobody really got a lot of meat I don't know what was going on but it was something to do with nutrition 
and uh, and smoking because I mean you know I was yeah. watching a Robert Redford movie the other day and all heartthrobs had gigantic bobble heads and little stringy bodies and lots of hair for some reason <laughs> that was a very sexy look in those days so that's kind of what he looked like and I also got to go down to go down to the cells and be in the court where he came up. Now, one of the most important Scottish lawyers, the, the most famous Scottish lawyers, um, I got to speak to him about it. And he was a boy and he became a lawyer because of this case. So it was a huge cultural thing, um, P- the Peter Manuel murders, because it was such a, it, it was on telly. I mean, it was such a jazzy kind of, it was so American because he was breaking into people's houses and killing everybody. It was such it's, a weird well, the crime was almost American in a way. You know, you don't expect it here. You know, these really violent uh, break-ins where he kills every member of the family. And actually, the the, the other family, the smart family that he kills, th- tell us about that chilling detail where he stays in the house. He, he killed, he broke into this family's house. He shot them all in their beds, including a 10-year-old boy. And then he hung around the house for a week and he kept opening and shutting the curtains and he fed the cat and uh, the neighbours knew something was wrong because the curtains were being opened and shut in a way that a woman, they were being yanked shut so they were open at the top in a way that a woman who was conscious of heating would never do and the father of the first family who were murdered in their beds was arrested and he was a very odd man he got out of prison and he said I'm going to solve this case I'll pay for information And one of the people who came forward with information was the murderer. And they met for a drink and they went on a 12-hour bender. And nobody knows what happened that night. So it's a really amazing case. But because it was before serial killers were a big thing, lots of people don't really know about it. And he, so he, your book really follows that, uh, that pub crawl over the, over the, that kind of 11, 12 hour period, (laughs) but then they meet, but then they meet again. And and again, it's like a movie. They meet again in court because Peter sacks his lawyers. He sacks his lawyers and represents himself, which is a classic psychopath move to, it's just, there isn't enough attention in the world and you think you're great at everything. So he sacks his lawyers and he calls the father back and they have a really weird conversation about the night they got drunk together. And using that conversation, I pieced together all the places that they'd been. Now to most people saying, uh, you know, they met for a drink and they ended up drinking for 12 hours sounds very suspicious. But to Glaswegians, meeting for one drink would sound very suspicious. So it's not as odd as it sounds, <laughs> especially at that time. You seem very comfortable with the presenting now. With, with did, it, did that start with the travel shows with Frank Skinner? It did. You know, I've always done little bits and bobs. And it started with the tra- the, Frank and I did a, a documentary series about Boswell and Johnson. And we were so cold, it was quite hard to be self-conscious because we were just so cold. <laughs> and then we ended up getting on great guns and uh, we made another one. And we're, I think we're about to do another one. And he's just such a good laugh. You know, it's very difficult to, I think I would have been nervous. Or if you're on your own, it feels different. It feels quite formal. But if you're with Frank, it just feels like you're jollying about with your pal at your work. Do you know what I mean? Uh, so but also... Fun. You know, I was just going to say, but presumably doing uh, the Once Upon a Crime, because you know that story so well, yeah. again, you must have been quite incredibly kind of confident and relaxed going into it. Well, I was very confident and relaxed. And also I was very interested because one of the things is you can get access to things if you say you're with a TV company. I may form a TV company because you can get into anywhere. 
So they always take you places that you've been desperate to go for ages um, because they say to somebody, we're a TV company and people are like, whoa, come on in then. So um, so it, a lot of it is genuine curiosity and a real sense of the privilege that, that you have of getting access to these things. And I mean, it, 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 did, you, did you go to anywhere that you had to imagine when you were writing the book? Yes. So there was a bit where we were in the court and I got to go down to the cells and come up. Now, when you come up into the dock, you had to imagine what that would feel like to have a full. You're not allowed to look back. Everyone's behind you. Everyone hates you. There are guards there because they think someone's going to try and murder you. The judge is up on a big pole. So I had to imagine all that stuff. I actually got to come up from the cells and stand in the dock and talk to a lawyer who was standing in the court. I mean, it was amazing. It was really amazing. So you're in imagined spaces. And it's like, if you go to New York for the first time and you've seen loads of movies, you're in an imagined space. So it feels like three or four different realities. It's amazing. Four, you know, yeah. All these realities are going on at the same time. So that's what it felt like. So I do look a bit wide-eyed and my sty is throbbing. <laughs> would you l let the sty go let it go put it in a sty balloon and let it go no one's noticing the sty we will now now that you've of mentioned course. it <laughs> um, and did has the long drop been uh turned into a, a a movie or a tv show no do you know it hasn't it's been optioned several times I feel very precious with that book, and I and every time I, you know somebody buys it, I take I cash the check and almost immediately think, oh, I don't know if I should have done that because you don't get masses of money for an adaptation of your book anymore. I honestly think it means people don't read it, and uh, and you know they are your babies, and you really it's like sending a child off to university is quite an ambivalent experience to be honest with you. It's not all joy and hooray you get the money and, and I think it does stop people reading the book and if you are a writer you're really all about you've just had an adaptation done of your book did you feel unambivalently joyous about that um I sort of said goodbye to the book I I sort of I'd said goodbye you know I'd finished with the those characters so I didn't feel like I wanted to adapt it or anything so I was just I was kind of you know interested I was sort of you know to to see what they did to the story and stuff um yeah, I know what you but mean. But at the same time, you do feel like, you know, she doesn't have brown hair. What on earth are you thinking? You well, see, I, I just went, oh, I didn't see her like that. But but it didn't bother me. I was I was quite, You're you know, I, I felt I felt I was done. I felt I was done with the, the, the book. Um, well, I, it, I'm it's very petulant and I think you don't understand me or my music and I go off and have a cry <laughs> and, on a big pile of money. <laughs> But what about Conviction, though? Conviction, which uh, 2019, it came out in 2019, that was an enormous hit uh, here in, in America. Has that been optioned? That has been optioned and it has been dropped within eight months and then it has been optioned again. And, uh, um, you know, there's loads of... The thing is, I don't announce when things get optioned because there are so many variables. And yeah. if it fails, the people who have optioned it, who have tried really, really hard then feel embarrassed that it hasn't worked. So um, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things in the fire at the moment and um, there's loads of stuff happening. But I'll just announce it two days before it comes out because otherwise everybody... Because there are so many variables in these things. And... Uh, yeah. You know, and also in terms of selling books, which we want to do, uh, am I right in thinking you've now done a sequel to Conviction? Yes, I have. It's called Confidence. I don't know if you know what Herb X is... 
these are films where people break into unused buildings. Well, this girl um, at the very start, she it's uh, on YouTube. She breaks into a building and she finds a silver box in a secret room that is proof of the crucifixion. And then she disappears. And uh, then the, the box comes up for auction in Paris. So um, uh, Anna and Finn are on a disastrous family holiday in a lighthouse and they hate their family so much they run off and um, start investigating. <laughs> so why, you know, I mean, you've ever been on a holiday where you just think, oh God, I just want to get out of here. That's so they get out of there and they go off and solve the problem of religion this time. <laughs> You're a genius. I look forward to reading it, Denise Miner. Thank you so much. Uh, just to remind everybody, Once Upon a True Crime, it premieres exclusively on Crime and Investigation tomorrow at nine o'clock and you can look out for Denise in episode three. Thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Take care. Have a lovely Sunday. Bye-bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Right on Friday night, uh, there was a new Sky original called The Rising. It's a really clever twist on a crime drama, and it's now available to stream on Sky Max. And now, uh, one of the stars of The Rising joins us, Emily Taff. Hello, Emily Taff. Hello, Graham Norton. How are you? I'm very well indeed. So listen, The Rising, I say, it is a really clever twist on a kind of on a, a on a sort of crime drama genre that we've probably seen before. Uh, how I know you hate this, but uh, tell us about that. How do you describe the show? Uh, well, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, I am notoriously terrible at doing this, but my uh, my description <laughs> of it would be that uh, it's a it's a supernatural crime thriller about a young woman called Neve Kelly who uh, wakes up dead, and the series follows her as she um, solves her own murder and finds justice for herself. So it is the it is the dead girl story that we've seen. But um, what makes this show different is Neve is the subject, not just the object of the story. So she has some control, um, she has some agency, and she's very much our hero who we follow through. Um, we follow through the eight episodes. No, it is good. So often, as you say, you know, so often the, the only woman you see is lying in a pool of her own blood and that's that's it. And then it's kind of, you know, who, who, what man killed her and what man's going to solve it. So this is a really good way of kind of, I guess, putting a woman at the centre of her own story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, as we are all too sadly aware, you know, violence against women is... A pandemic of its own um, and I think it is really important that we tell these stories but but you know it, it's the angle at which y- you look at it and um, and I you know I'm really proud of this show I'm really proud of the way the story is told and you know there's no gratuitous violence the way Neve is shown is is in a very sort of um, it's, it, it's in a it, it makes her you know gives her strength and and you know we had a, an amazing actress in in Clara Rugard who who brings her to life not you know pardon the pun because yeah. she's obviously dead yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah no she she's she's a she's a really strong character and and it, and it, i think it's um it's refreshing to see the story told in that way and you play maria the mother and of course you've got these scenes then where she's there but you don't know she's there Yes, it's quite difficult uh, doing that sort of thing because obviously, you know, when you're acting opposite somebody, usually you're trying to react off what what, what you're getting from the other person. But um, unfortunately, we weren't able to do that. So, yeah, it required a little bit of... uh, 
you know, concentration not to look directly at Clara whilst pretending that I couldn't see her. Um, and, um, you know, luckily we had some time where we were able to rehearse and get to know each other and, and, and bond. So that depth of that relationship was, was already there before, before we started filming. So it's not all special effects. I mean, she was there then. You just weren't, you just were acting very well at not being able to see her. Thanks very much, Graham. Um, yeah, no, so there were, you do like a couple of shots. So you do one shot where she was there um, and then and then you do another one, another take where she wasn't there and you'd have to sort of just pretend. Um, and uh, yeah, there was some, there, you know, there was one particular scene in, in one of the episodes where we're sort of touching but not touching and and so yeah I found it quite difficult but um but also at the same time it was nice because because she was physically there so you, you did have that person to to kind of feed off their energy and it's, I don't know what you're like but when I got to Britain I got to London and I have not moved really much of an inch since uh, that's all I've seen of the country in the last 30 <laughs> years um, so I don't know if you've been around but that where you film this looks so gorgeous oh my god it was beautiful well I'm quite lucky so so I do get to travel around a bit um, I'm, I'm like the littlest hobo I pack up my rucksack and off I go um, and uh, and we actually I moved up to, to Manchester with my family um last year for six months myself my husband the baby and the dog um, and then from there we travelled around a bit so so quite a lot of it was filmed in, in Manchester in the Peak District which is absolutely beautiful and, and again I had never gone there I, I had no reason to go there um, and it was a you know a real gift to see it and then and then the big lake scenes and everything like that is filmed up in um, we filmed that up in the Lake District up in Keswick and oh my goodness it is just beautiful. I'd been to Windermere, but I'd never gone that bit further north. And it is so worth those extra couple of hours in the car because, I mean, it's just beautiful. And and and, and like you say, if I hadn't been in the show and known that it was filmed in the UK, I, I wouldn't have thought it was because I, you know, those epic landscapes aren't something that we necessarily associate with England, but they're there. You just have to hop on the train or, or, or go up, go up in the car. Yeah, it's funny when you're when you're when I was living in Ireland, my vision of Britain was that it was just packed. It was just houses everywhere. Just you couldn't move for the people. And so it's amazing to see these landscapes totally bleak, totally empty. It's it's amazing. You sort of don't really sort of think that that's there, but yeah, it's just and it's not very far away. Um, So yeah, it's it's worth if people are if people are thinking about not getting on a plane and going through the seven million COVID protocols you have to do. I would say hop on, hop on, uh, hop on a train and go, go and explore the country. Listen to us doing the UK tourist board. VisitEngland.com. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I assumed it was based on a book, but it's not. It's based on a, a, a another television series. Yeah, it's based on a Belgian show, Hotel de. Um, that I can't say properly, so <laughs> I'm just going to fudge that really professionally. Um, and yeah, that that um, I actually haven't seen it, uh, but it's hugely uh, successful. And um, yeah, that was the that was the inspiration for it. And then the writers, um, I think they they changed it somewhat, changed the characters. But yeah, that's the central the central concept is based on that uh, Belgian TV show Hotel de. And tell me this, uh, is there a season two of Hotel de Blah Blah Blah? I think there is. And I think, um, again, they've they've kept the central concept where it's somebody comes back from the dead, but they've but they've changed all the characters. Because um, oh. I think there's so only so far. So 
Yes, you have no interest in that. Then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is there a job? No, not interested. Next. <laughs> yeah, I'm not in that. Am I Forget in it? it? Am I in it? No, sorry. No. Sorry, no interest. No interest. You know me so well, Graham. <laughs> and tell me this, Emily, when did you come over from Ireland? So I came over... 17 years ago um, I went to university in Dublin and then I uh, came to England to train at Lambda um, and I did the two year course there because um, I thought if I graduated drama school at uh, any more than 23 I'd be far too old and uh, no one would possibly want to employ me so so yeah so I did the two year postgrad at at Lambda and um, had a wonderful time in West London and I've been here since I've been back and forth to do jobs and um, and stuff but yeah no I'm very much based here now the roots are down yeah. And and did you ever, but you never thought about going back and, and working in Ireland? Um, well, I, I have, but I, 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 yeah. I, and I, you know, you, you sort of, I don't know about you, but you come over for a bit and next thing you know, it's, you know, five years later, then 10 years later, then 15. Like it doesn't, it's not that you sort of leave and you're like, goodbye, Ireland, I shall never set foot on you again. It's just, it somehow sort of happens without you realising it. And, and you know, and then I, I, I met someone and I got married and now I have a child here. And, and you sort of make your life somewhere, don't you? And, and actually, I have to say, pre-COVID, you're sort of spoiled because you could hop back on a plane to Ireland for cheaper than a train ride to the Lake District, for example. So it never yes. really felt like I'd gone away fully and and I found that actually that was the that was one of the things about the pandemic that and I and I know like a lot of my Irish friends in the UK found the same thing that it suddenly was a bit shocking that you actually were you know in a different country and you and you, and you couldn't go back yes. you know you Big kind of world yeah you sort of trick yourself into thinking that ah sure I can just hop on a hop on a flight and it's only half an hour or you know an hour so yeah it's uh it, it, it's funny how it happens how you suddenly make your home somewhere without realizing it well, happily, the world is open again and The Rising, the Sky original The Rising, it started on Friday. It's all available to stream on Sky Max. And now, Emily Taft, thank you so much for talking to us. Take lovely, care and congratulations and good you. everything. Thank all you. Right, Have take a care day. Now. Bye. Ah, another show done and dusted. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you can hear a new episode of the best of bits from the show from early Monday morning. Speak to you soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Virgin Radio.